True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. sad and a gruesome crime and this week isn't much better i hope you're all doing fine try to keep safe keep your distance from one another and at least until this curve has flattened in australia it's looking like it has flattened so we've gone down this route so everyone really stay indoors for a few more weeks so this case is from 1981 it's another one of those random killings that had no reason at all behind it it wasn't a crime of passion drug or a business deal gone wrong not not that those things validate taking someone's life but at least they provide the motivation behind it there's some sort of reason why it happened now tonight we reference not many things actually a lot of it's from the sydney morning herald a little bit from The Age, some from ForgottenIllawarra.blog or WordPress blog, uh, Crime Investigation. They did a episode on this murder, ABC and The Daily Mail of all things. Now, it's February 1981. A headless and fingerless body is found at the bottom of a cliff, bound and naked. So tonight is the case of 19-year-old Kim Barry, and at the end, can we catch her murderer? Now, this is a little bit weird. He's actually done his time for her murder, but he's been a bad boy since he got out, and he's currently on the run. So we'll get to that. So this murder was extremely gruesome, and whether or not the perpetrator got what he deserved, well, we'll probably see by the end of the show. So, as I said tonight, we go over the murder of Kim Barry, born 1961 at Wollongong, New South Wales, to Brian and Beverly Barry. She had a younger brother, Wayne, and the family lived at Rama Avenue, Mount Pleasant, and that's about a 10-minute drive northwest of the town centre of Wollongong. Her grandpa also lived with the family as well. Kim was a happy and active child who did well in school, As a teenager, she was trusted to babysit for her next-door neighbour and she avoided the so-called bad groups at school. You know what I mean? She avoided those that were experimenting in drugs and the like. Now, this is according to her uh, dad, Barry. As she got older and left school, she enjoyed going out with her friends and dancing, signing up for dance lessons at the local dance studio. She had plans to become a nurse and volunteered at a local differently-abled institution called Cram House. Here she worked hard and didn't shy away from the challenges that arose, cleaning, feeding and helping in the best way possible. Her heart was 100% in the job. So now we get to Friday the 6th of February 1981. Kim's parents have gone away for the night and Kim has been asked to babysit Well, babysit probably isn't the best word, but mind her 15-year-old brother, Wayne. However, she decides to go out with her friend Donna Holland to the movies. 
Now, after the movie, they decide to grab a few drinks and dance at the Crown Gardens Disco in Wollongong, which opened onto Crown Lane near the intersection of Crown Street. There's a shopping centre there now. Kim buys a bottle of Leap for Wine at the bar and meets an acquaintance, Graham Jean Potter, who she'd met at the dance studio when she was doing lessons. Now, that was back in 1978, so that was about three years before. Potter, a 23-year-old former morgue worker, now worked as a coal miner. He was at the Crown Gardens with his younger brother, Glenn, and a couple of friends. Potter was celebrating his Bucks night as he was getting married the next week. In fact, he would be getting married on Valentine's Day, and Glenn was celebrating his 21st birthday. At around 11pm, Donna tells Kim that she wants to go home as she's not feeling that well. Kim tries to persuade Donna to stay, offering her a bed at her house as her parents had gone away. Kim also tells her she doesn't want to go home alone, but Donna insists she wants to get the last train home. Donna checks Kim's wallet to make sure she has enough money to catch a taxi home, and then she goes back to Dapto, where she lives. Potter then leaves... Potter sees that... Kim is alone. He leaves his party and sits down with Kim and they chat. As I said before, they'd briefly met at the same dance studio in 1978 while taking lessons to disco dance. Remember, this was prime disco time and you didn't want to look like Theresa May on the dance floor. At around 11.15pm, Potter gets up, takes the remains of the bottle of Lib for Wine over to his brother's table and tells him he'll be back soon. Potter and Kim then leave the Crown Gardens together and get a taxi to his place. At around 1am, Potter returns to the Crown Gardens and tells his brother that Kim got cold feet at the door to his unit and she went home. A short time later, Potter and his very drunk brother Glenn catch a taxi back to his unit. Glenn is paralytic and crashes on the couch. In the morning, Glenn would wake up and leave without talking to his brother. So this is Saturday the 7th of February. When Brian and Bev Barry get home, they see that Kim has left her brother alone all night. She's gone out and hasn't come home. Now back in the day, this happened and wasn't seen as an alarming thing. Kids go out and sleep over friends' places. There's no mobile phones or instant messaging. A lot of homes actually still didn't have a phone, a landline. So it was usually a case of when you did get home after staying out all night, it was dealt with on your return. On Sunday afternoon, the 8th of February, apprentice plumber Scott Davies was walking through the bush at Jamboree Lookout and he makes a grisly discovery. Now Jamboree, by the way, is about a 50-minute drive south of Wollongong and on a clear day you can see Kiama, Lake Illawarra and even five islands in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Wollongong. It's known to be a bit of a secluded area and stolen cars are often dumped here. That's why, that's why Scott is walking around below the lookout. He was seeing if he could find a few parts for his car. He sees a pair of legs poking out of the bush. When he gets closer you can see it's obviously the dead body of a girl. He legs it out of there and contacts the police. The police rescue squad attend the scene. When they first see the body, it looks like the head is obscured by a tree. But on closer inspection, 
they see that the head is missing. The body is naked, the ankles are bound together with a bra, and one of the hands is bound to the ankles as well. There is a blouse wrapped around her arm. Now, not only has the head been cut off, but so have all the fingers. The police rescue squad winch the body up the cliff face and they search the area for clues and also the other body parts. They don't find the head or fingers. They find no other clothing or possessions of the mystery girl. An initial autopsy can't find the cause of death, but they rule out any sexual assault. It was found that the body had a broken arm and fingers on one hand had been sawn off, but on the other hand they'd been sort of ripped off, possibly by pliers. On Monday the 9th of February, police desperately try to find the identity of the headless girl. They hold a press gathering and show the bra and blouse, hoping that someone will recognise it. At this time, Beverly Barry is watching the news and she recognises the bra and blouse. Kim hasn't been home since Friday night and this must have been awful for the parents. Brian and Beverly contact police and go down to view the body for formal identification. They are able to confirm it's Kim by a heart-shaped birthmark under her breast. Now that they've identified the body, investigators can now try to get together a timeline of Kim's last movements. By Tuesday and Wednesday, the TV and print media have splashed Kim's face around the nation. As the gruesome details of what happened to her get out, it shocks and disgusts the whole population. Now, cutting heads and fingers off bodies. Now, this is often a drug gang thing, but Kim's parents assure the investigators that Kim is not involved in any way with illegal drugs and none are found in her system. There's also a rumour that a satanic cult being involved, but this is ruled out as nonsense. As they piece together Kim's final moments, they find out that she was at the Crown Gardens disco on the Friday night and that her friend Donna left her there just after 11pm. They get information that Graham Potter was with her at the time and that he left with her after 11pm and returned about an hour later by himself. He then left with his brother a short time after that And investigators also get information from a witness, probably one of Potter's mates that was at his table, that before he left, he left a half bottle of leap for wine on the table and said, finish this. Now, there was only one bottle of leap for wine sold that night, and that was to Kim Barry. So not only do they have witnesses that say they've been together that night, they also have the bottle of wine to link Potter to the last movements of Kim. Now, police tried locating Potter, but he disappeared. He'd withdrawn about $3,000 from his bank account. He writes a will and a letter which he gives to his solicitor and rings his brother Glenn to tell him he's skipping town. The letter is addressed to his fiancée, Cherie Jones, and it was to tell her that he loved her, that he'd messed everybody's lives up, and that he would tell her why he had to go sometime in the future. Clearly, He hadn't worked out his story yet. When investigators went to his Underwood Street Coromel property to do a search of the premises, they found it it empty and extremely clean. 
Potter had taken off in Cherise Holden Kingswood and so police put out an APB to try and locate it. On the 28th of February, near to the Jamboree lookout area, Dean Smith and his girlfriend were walking his dog in the bushland. When his dog fails to come when he calls, he goes to have a look at what is the problem and he sees his dog is looking at a human skull. Police are called and search the area and not only find the skull, but following a trail of hair, they also find a ripped open plastic bag, bloodied sheets, a dressing gown and the tips of fingers. Tests would show that the blood was the same type as Kim's, which was extremely rare, occurring in less than 1% of Australians. The fingers and skull were also hers. The skull had been bashed in in the left side above the eye. There were pink blood stains in the teeth, which shows that she'd not only been bashed in the head with something large like that adjustable spanner, but the staining indicated she'd been also strangled. Cherie's car that Potter had run off in was finally located at Goulburn the same day the skull and fingers were found. Now, Goulburn's about a two-hour drive southwest of Sydney and probably a bit less about the same from Wollongong. A forensic examination found a blood-stained shirt belonging to Potter but no other blood in the car. Now, that blood type was, again, the same type as Kim's. There's also another love letter to Cherie telling her how much he loves her and that he has to go because he fears for his life. A new forensic examination of Potter's apartment finds finds traces of blood under a carpet and in the bathroom drains. This matches Kim's rare blood type. Hair similar to Kim's is found stuck on a freshly painted skirting board and in the clothes dryer. So armed with this information, investigators go to his parents' place to search through all the stuff Potter had stored there from his apartment. They found heaps of cleaning products, paint, a hacksaw, a large spanner and bloodstains in a wardrobe. They also found sheeting similar to the type found with the skull and a dressing gown cord the same colour as the gown which was also found with the skull and fingers. Forensic examination found that the hacksaw made the same type of cut marks that were found on Kim Barry's finger bones. The spanner looks like it may have been used to hit Kim on the head. On the 14th of April, Potter is found in the bath of his parents' house at Wambara, north of Wollongong. He dyed his hair red and grown a beard. So that was a couple of months after. He was arrested and charged with murder. He refused to speak to investigators. The next day he appeared in court and protested his innocence. He told the state magistrate Ian Pike that he had returned to clear his name. He was refused bail and remanded in custody until April 29. He would again be refused bail until the committal hearing on July the 22nd. It is at this committal hearing that Potter's version of events is finally known. So he says that yes, he was with Kim on the night of the 7th and they started chatting at the Crown Garden Disco. He said that Kim told him two guys had been harassing her and she wanted to leave. He said that she was too scared to go home alone and asked if she could go to his apartment for coffee. He agreed, but when they got there, there was a knock at the door. When he answered the door, two men forced their way in and started to interrogate Kim. 
They threatened him and told him to go upstairs. He heard a struggle and when he looked down, he saw Kim on the floor and she looked dead. The two men then threatened him that if he doesn't keep his mouth shut, they will kill him and his family. The guys tell him to go back to the disco and act as if nothing had happened. He went back to the disco and drinks for another couple of hours. By about 4am, he takes his brother home, who's pissed as a fart, and when he opens the door, he sees the blood stain on the carpet covered by a sheet, and Kim's body is gone. He then goes upstairs to sleep. The next morning, he gets up and his brother is gone already, and the two guys return. They muscle him up to the stairs to the spare bedroom, where they'd put Kim's body. The two guys take a body to the bathroom, where they decapitate her, and cut off her fingers. All the time they keep telling him that he will be blamed for this if he goes to the police as it's his house. They then tell him to dispose of the body. The two guys leave. He then hitchhikes to Cherie's place where he takes her car back to his place, gets Kim's body, then he loads her up in the car and goes to the Jamboree lookout where he throws her bound body over the cliff. Then he noticed he'd forgotten the bag with her purse, rings, rolling pin and clothes in it. And so he had to stop again to get rid of that. He then drove off and said that he'd forgotten to throw away her head. And so he had to stop and throw that away as well. He then goes back to clean his unit and move all his stuff to his parents. And when he sees Kim's body is found a day later, he takes her car, drives to Goulburn, dumps it, then catches a train to Melbourne. He changes his appearance with the red hair dye and starts to grow a beard. He then flies to New Zealand, but then he decides to come home to prove his innocence. Fuck's sake, what a story. Police get him to make identical photos of these two men, but when shown to everyone that was at the disco that night, no one recognises them. In fact, the identical experts say that usually people will settle on the eyes first. But Potter kept changing the eyes. Now, they thought he was just making it all up. In March 1982, the trial is held. Potter stuck with his story that there were two guys that came in and killed her and he was threatened and forced to dispose of her body. He also said that in the taxi on the way home, he'd seen drugs in her purse when she opened it and it was probably drug dealers that were after her. Now, as she'd had her head and fingers removed, this was supposed to be how drug cartels get rid of their problems. As the fingers on one hand had been sawn off and the other hand they were sort of pulled off, probably with a pair of pliers, his defence tried to argue that because Kim's fingers were removed in two different ways, this indicated that there were two killers. Now, the reality... (laughs) was that his story was fanciful and it had so many issues. I mean, why would the supposed drug dealers kill Kim, let Potter go and trust him not to go straight to the police? They then leave her body there, then return the next day. I mean, how would they know Potter hadn't gone to police already and the police were at the murder scene investigating? When Potter says he was told to go back to the disco and act as if nothing had happened, why would he bring his drunk brother back to the murder scene when he had no idea if the two guys were still there? Then 
He goes to bed. He doesn't even check around the house to see if the two guys are still inside or, or, or whatever's going on. You'd think he'd go around and just check the place. Now, he had ample opportunity to call police, but he says, he well, he reckons he would be killed by these drug dealers and so would his family. Now, after disposing of the body, he takes off and changes his appearance. Again, why? If he intended to hand himself in in the end, why didn't he just go to police on the night of the murder? He dumps the body, the head and the rest of her stuff in three different locations. And I'll get to the third bag of stuff later because at the time of the trial, it had yet been found. I mean, how could you forget that you had the murder weapon and her possessions in a plastic bag in your car and have to stop to throw that out later? And then he drives on and remembers that her, oh shit, I've got a head and the fingers in another plastic bag. I better stop again and throw that into the bush. I mean, fuck's sake, what absolute bullshit. Now, the prosecution had a different theory. Potter, even though he was on his bucks night, saw Kim sitting by herself and thought if he, he, he could see if he had a chance, as they'd met years before. Kim had no idea he was getting married and had actually fancied Potter when they'd first met the years ago at the dance, dance lessons. So they ended up at his place and Kim had knocked him back. Now, maybe Potter was coming on too fast or well, maybe Kim saw some of the wedding shit he might have had lying around, or photos of himself and his fiancée, Cherie. Now, this probably made Potter mad, and in his rage and possible struggle with Kim, he hit her on the head, probably with a rolling pin. He then hit her body upstairs and raced back to the Crown Garden's disco to give himself an alibi. On return to his house with his brother, he found that Kim wasn't dead after all and hit her a second time, this time maybe with the spanner. In the morning when his brother left, he found that she'd still not died and so he strangled her, now this being the evidence in the pink discolouring of the teeth. He then cut her up as he did to make it look like a drug cartel killing and disposed of her body in three different places, hoping she wouldn't be found and if she was, it would be difficult to identify her body. He used two different methods to cut off her fingers to make it look like there were two different people that had killed her. I mean, he's phantom drug dealers. With all the other evidence that I've already gone through, in April 1982, the jury would find Potter guilty of murder and he was sentenced to life in prison. But we'll get to how long he actually serves in a minute. Now get this. A couple of months later, this is when he first goes to prison, his fiancée, Cherie Jones, marries him. I mean, what the fuckity fuck fuck? What is wrong with people? Now, I don't want to be a podcast hole to this woman. But this guy Potter goes around cutting people's heads off and dumps them in the bush. His version of events that led to the death of Kim Barry is just fanciful bullshit. Now, I can get how his mum and dad supported him. I mean, their blood. But Cherie had the chance to make a clean break from this scum and she decides to marry him. Now, after serving around eight years inside, Potter, after being put in medium security, he breaks out and goes on the run. And luckily, he's captured the next day. 
how do they put these people in medium security? Well, <laughs> let's get on to that. But then we get this new truth in sentencing law in New South Wales, and his sentence gets redetermined to just a minimum of 12 years and 8 months. So that's his new non-parole period. He's released after 14 years in 1996, after he's considered to be a rehabilitated man. I mean, what the actual fuck? He killed an innocent 19-year-old girl for no reason. Not only that, he cut her head and fingers off and dumped a body in the bush, and he does only 14 years. It's this sort of crime that needs the perpetrator locked up forever, never to be released for fuck's sake. Now, this is why these psychopaths get away with shit. They can play the long game. You know those people who always win staring contests and who last first? Well, they're all psychopaths. I remember my, well, if you remember my first ever episode on Charles Sabrage. Now, if you haven't heard of it, have a listen. But, but please, it was my very first, very first episode. So it is a little bit wonky. Well, Sabrage was doing 12 years in an Indian jail. Now, that must be a very nice place to be, an Indian jail. And he was doing it for murder and he was going to be released. But this meant he could be extradited to Thailand and face the death penalty there for murder. But Thailand has a 20-year statute of limitations on murder. So he organises the prison guards to be drugged via a birthday cake he gets for him. He escapes prison, but he hangs around town so he can get recaptured. He then gets 10 more years tacked onto his sentence so that by the time he's finally released, the statute of limitations in Thailand for his murder charges will have lapsed. I mean, what the fuck? He can really play the long game. Now, same with Potter. Play the good boy while inside, get out early and fool everyone. That's why he's able to con Shireen and marrying him and pull the wool over his parents' eyes. Now, remember I told you about the third bag containing Kim's possessions? Well, that would be found in 1987 by a guy going bushwalking along Jamboree Road. In the bag was Kim's purse containing her driver's license and the two $2 notes that Donna had made sure she had for the taxi on the night of her death. Her ring and jewellery were in there as well as a rolling pin and all of her clothes that were missing. Now, the bit where Potter reckoned she had all these drugs in her purse? Well, her purse was one of those really tiny ones. And of course, no drugs were found. So Potter, after being released... He was then wanted in relation for the planning of the murder, this is a few years later, of two men, including an associate of Mick Gatto, a Melbourne underworld figure, and that was in relation to some drug dispute. And then he was also wanted on federal drug charges over a 2008 ecstasy bust involving 15 million tablets smuggled inside tomato tins. Now, they had him, but he got bail. And he's been on the run since. So, if you see him, he's extremely dangerous. Call Crime Stoppers on 1-800-333-000 or you can go online to report him. It can be all anonymous. Now, he's been tracked and his campsites have been found. He's left notes which tell how he's invading justice by wearing fake wigs and fat suits. 
He's been caught on security cameras, but he always seems to be a step ahead of the cops. As I said, he can play the long game. Also found at the campsite where were newspapers that had job ad circle. Now, these job ads were such as housekeeper and farmhands. Now, the farmhand things, yeah, they'll probably employ absolutely anybody they don't give a fuck. But housekeeper? Fuck's sake. Now, I'll just read this bit from abc.net.au. He has welding, beekeeping, hydroponics, aquaponics, gold prospecting and earth moving skills. And is most likely to look for work as a caretaker, farmhand or outback station hand. Police believe Potter is likely in a relationship and is living in a rural area in Australia. And Senior Constable Finn has warned particularly women to be on the lookout for him. He says, this is not a man you want as a friend. Yeah. I'll have his photo posted on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, so please keep an eye out. If you haven't got those, just Google him. He could be anywhere, but probably a rural area in Queensland or Victoria. Now look at his eyes and nose. Study him. Maybe you have a female friend that suddenly changed and become more withdrawn now that she has a new partner. I believe he's using his power to persuade people to get them to help him stay on the run. Now remember, don't approach him. Call Crime Stoppers on 1-800-333-000 or go online to report him. So that's the end of the show. Just one of those gruesome cases that you hear, but geez, the, the fact that he's walking the streets at all just fucking amazes me. So we get to the Patreon And this week we've got a couple. Patron thanks to all my past, present and new patrons. Your financial support really, really does make a difference as True Crime Island is commercial free for all. Now it's Av Sura and Kelly Alicia. Thank you so much. It's very much appreciated. Now, to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. For as little as one US dollar a month, you can help out the island. Now, if you don't like the monthly thing, you can also donate to PayPal, as Heather Heather Reeds did this week. Thank you, Heather. But the PayPal link is donate.truecrimeisland.com or paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. Now, Heather, thank you so much. I'm glad you enjoyed the show about the sexophobic Montana bride and you also like my Chris Watts rants. Cheers, Heather, and my M-I-L and B-I-Ls are fantastic. Thanks for asking. Now, also, please, support yourself before you support the island. Now, I have Merchant Threadless and Redbubble now. Go to Redbubble, search for True Crime Island. You can also support the show, and this is a good way of doing it, by rating and reviewing. Also, please share it with your friends and family, especially my new YouTube channel. I'm trying to get those subscribers up, and it's starting to come along okay. That's the production values of it all. Now, all these links, including social media, are on my website, truecrimeisland.com. Okay. That's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, fucker,